afternoon, tax research students. I am here with Dr. Key and Dr. Mathis recording my very first podcast. Let's start first with introductions. Thanks, Dr. Inger. Uh, my first listening experience was the Simply Tax podcast. One of the online students encouraged me to listen to a certain podcast, so I felt like I had to listen. Uh, of course, it was interesting because it was about tax. Since then, my podcast library has expanded, and I listen to something almost every day. I have to say, I'm impressed that Dr. Inger is figuring out how to actually produce a podcast. My background includes the typical path from undergraduate accounting degree to public accounting. While I was working, I completed a master's in tax program, and two years later, I started a PhD program. I had spent my entire life in the Midwest, so when I finished the PhD, I headed to the South. I've been on the Auburn faculty for 20 years. A benefit of the research part of our jobs is that we are able to explore nearly any topic we find interesting, so long as we can get a paper published. There's a range of journal quality, and I'd like to give a shout out to Dr. Inger for recently having a paper accepted in the top journal in our field. Dr. Mathis has only been at AU for a few years and she already has an excellent research record. All right, Kent, um, Dr. Key, thank you so much for introducing yourself. Now we'll ask Dr. Mathis to introduce herself. Yeah, so I think I've had most of you in class, either um, in TAC2 or a few of our new MAC students currently in tax two. Um, so if this is a repeat of information you already know about me, um, I guess you'll get to hear it again. Um, but I did all three of my degrees at Oklahoma State University. So originally I was going to work in tax practice following graduation with my master's degree. Um, and I had a few faculty members at Oklahoma State approach me about staying for the PhD program. Um, you'll get a whole panel in Dr. Long's class about the advantages of getting a PhD in accounting, um, but at the time it seemed very appealing to me and still is, and so um, I decided um, to pursue um, a PhD in accounting. So I have been here at Auburn, and this is the start of my fourth year, which is hard to believe. Um, so just like Dr. Key, prior to living um, in Alabama, I had lived in Oklahoma my entire life. So um, I've learned that, you know, people are pretty similar no matter where you end up. All right. Thanks so much. Um, as Dr. Key mentioned, she likes listening to podcasts and Dr. Mathis and I do as well. A lot of the podcasts that we listen to are for fun. I, I think I've mentioned my um, true crime podcast a few times in class. But we also listen to tax podcasts to stay informed about current tax topics. Of course, you are now familiar with a couple of these from your homework assignments. The podcast that we are recording today is going to focus on our research. And in general, our research falls into three categories, academic, pedagogical, and practitioner research. As you might imagine, the three of us tend to research tax issues. But there's also research focusing on other accounting subdisciplines like audit, information systems, financial and managerial accounting, governmental accounting, and many others. The categories I mentioned apply to all of the subdisciplines of accounting research. Dr. Mathis, why don't you tell us about the first one I mentioned, academic research? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, when people hear that I have a PhD in accounting and that my job is to teach and do research, they always ask, how do you research in tax? Um, and so it might be a little bit different than what people imagine when they think about like um, the hard sciences type research. But there are three basic types of accounting research. The first is analytical, which is way above my head, but it's basically um, math modeling using calculus. So um, a very small group of people do um, analytical tax research. Um, can probably count the people who are really good at this on one hand. Um, this, and no one here at Auburn currently does this type of research. The second type of academic research is what we call behavioral. Some people like to refer to it as experimental because they say we all examine human behavior. But experimental or behavioral research is maybe what you think of more commonly. It's basically experiments. So behavioral research is useful um, because you aren't necessarily reliant on having a data set or having information that's publicly available, like in the research that the, we do, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but you are needing participants. And so if you're trying to examine a tax question, oftentimes in behavioral research, you need people in tax practice. And so that can be a unique challenge um, when doing tax-based behavioral research. Interestingly enough, Dr. Long, who a lot of you probably have right now, actually has a tax behavioral paper, and he always jokes that um, such a small group does tax behavioral research that he's ranked, I think, number nine on the list of tax behavioral researchers, despite his primary research interest being an audit. So um, behavioral research in tax is definitely a small group as well. And the type of research that Dr. Inger, Dr. Key, and I do primarily or almost exclusively um, is archival research. So what archival research means in a nutshell is basically um, we take large data sets um, of information, usually on publicly um, traded firms, and we run regressions. So we're looking at associations um, between different variables. So like one of my research papers looks at earnings management through the tax account. And so I can kind of trace all of those constructs um, to information within a 10K that I can obtain. And um, one advantage of um, behavioral research, the experiment is as strong what we call internal validity, um, but sometimes it lacks external validity, meaning being able to generalize to other settings. Um, and the opposite can be said um, for archival research. So one interesting thing about academic research, as Dr. Inger mentioned, is that it's really only um, one of the three types of research we can do, but it's what we spend the majority, uh, if not all, of our PhD program learning how to do. So when I showed up at Auburn, really the only type of research I was familiar with was um, academic research. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Mathis. That was an excellent explanation. And as you mentioned, we all engage in this type of research. And I would also say that this is the type of research that's most important early in your career, as these are the type of publications that are crucial for promotion and tenure. Dr. Key, would you mind describing the next type, pedagogical research? Yeah, sure. Okay, to be clear, uh, pedagogy means the method and practice of teaching. Most faculty had a teaching experience that made them consider a PhD. So we are naturally interested in research about students and learning. This area breaks down into two categories. One is research on teaching methods and practices, and two, creating materials for classroom use. Research might investigate teaching choices or teaching innovations, 
and it needs to be theory-based. For example, there are psychology theories of motivation. The research uses students as subjects, generates data, and will use statistical analysis to make conclusions. I want to share a story. I think, I'm not sure if Dr. Inger and uh, Dr. Mathis know this story about um, some research involving two of our students' favorite professors, uh, Dr. Jones and Dr. Long. So our listeners probably know Dr. Long was an AU undergraduate student, but they might not know that some of us in the School of Accountancy were actually his professors, including Dr. Jones. Well, several years ago, Dr. Jones and a colleague, colleague did pedagogy research on supplemental instruction, or SI for short. Students' subjects were divided into three groups. Some received no SI, for some it was voluntary, and for a final group it was mandatory. Well, Dr. Long was assigned to the mandatory group, which he did not want to attend. I imagine he was confident he could get an A without the SI. Dr. Long is still a little angry about his role as a research subject, but he can laugh about it too. Uh, by the way, the research showed that SI had a positive effect on student performance. And the second category of pedagogy research is to create materials like cases for classroom use. These cases undergo a thorough review and feedback, feedback process before being published in a journal. It is time consuming work, but faculty do it because case-based learning benefits our students. All right, great. Thanks, Dr. Key. We all really enjoy engaging in this research and in particular the case research and many of the faculty at Auburn have had a lot of success. So much so that Auburn is currently ranked number one in the world in case research and accounting. Um, the last category of research is practitioner and I'll describe that. This type of research generally takes a deep dive into a technical tax topic. And practitioners will use these papers to understand a particular topic and even um, we might use it when conducting tax research, um, like for tax research class. Um, practitioner articles may also focus on important issues to the accounting profession, such as work-life quality, recruiting, et cetera. I have published a few of these, but generally prefer the other categories. Okay, now let's talk about a few of our specific studies. Let's start with some academic studies. Dr. Mathis, why don't you tell us about something you are working on? Yeah, absolutely. So some of you may have heard me mention these items briefly in class when I get on a tangent. Um, but most of my research deals with the U.S. taxation of U.S. firms' um, foreign earnings or the earnings they earn abroad. And so when the TCA, TCGA excuse me, um, passed at the end of 2017, I was in the end of my first semester here. And so what that did was it converted the U.S. from a worldwide tax system, essentially, where the U.S. taxed all earnings for U.S. firms, no matter where they were located, um, to a quasi-territorial system um, where theoretically we only tax um, earnings that are earned in the U.S. And so as a um, first year faculty member, I had a bit of a panic moment um, because I was wondering whether all the research I had done for the past four and a half, four and a half years um, would be publishable. But luckily, most of that editors have been understanding and most of that has moved through the process. So one of my new papers is looking at a new provision within um, that was passed under the TCGA called um, the GILTI inclusion, which stands for Global Intangible Low Tax Income. 
So when the U.S. converted to a quasi-territorial system, um, one thing they wanted to do was prevent firms from essentially shifting all of their earnings abroad. And so one way a firm could have done this without the guilty inclusion was essentially to locate their intangible assets abroad, which note the word intangibles, right? They're not physically located anywhere. Um, and then exempt the earnings generated by those intangibles from U.S. taxation. So the guilty inclusion is trying to proxy for income earned from intangible assets earned abroad, and then it's going to um, subject that income to a tax in the U.S. Now, why I'm going off on all this background is they don't actually calculate the income from intangibles directly. Instead, they proxy for it by essentially looking at the net income to the ratio of assets in the foreign subsidiaries. And so potentially firms could increase, um, excuse me, decrease their guilty inclusion, so decrease their tax liability by increasing um, their investment in foreign assets, which seems um, counterintuitive to congressional intent, um, where they were trying to spur domestic investment rather than foreign investment. And so um, my paper um, that I've enjoyed working on a lot this summer is looking at are U.S. multinationals engaging in more acquisitions um, of foreign targets in order to basically increase their foreign assets and therefore decrease their guilty inclusion in the residual U.S. tax liability as a result. Great, very interesting. And Dr. Mathis, it's, it's interesting that you're talking about U.S. companies acquiring foreign subsidiaries because we were actually talking about inversions in class, which is the opposite, where the U.S. parent becomes the foreign sub. So excellent timing. Um, all right, um, so while a lot of our research focuses on corporate taxpayers, sometimes a study will use a really interesting setting to examine a tax issue. Dr. Key, can you tell us about your thoroughbred um, tax paper? Yeah, sure, thanks. Um, the paper is my career favorite, really due to the topic and that it was kind of different. So our listeners might remember that um, implicit tax means that the price of a tax favored asset is higher relative to other assets. So I examined the effect of a new favorable depreciation tax law change that applied to racehorses, but not to breeding horses. The prediction was that the price of the newly tax favored racehorses would increase compared to previous years, but the prices of the breeding horses would not change. The breeding horses were like a control group. There's a surprising amount of publicly available data on racehorses information like prices and lineage, and I found a horse pricing model in an agricultural journal. So I was set to go, uh, and the results were consistent with the prediction. Excellent, I just love that one because implicit taxes are really hard to identify in the real world outside of the municipal bond example that we usually give. Um, for me, recently I've been interested in corporate social responsibility and have a few papers in this area. One we're gonna to submit to a journal soon examines tax disclosures and corporate social responsibility reports. And some firms are gonna describe paying tax as being socially responsible and highlight how their tax, their tax payments have benefited society through the number of schools that have been funded, the number of roads, and so on. And they'll also discuss having a positive relationship with the tax authority. And we find evidence that suggests that firms are using these tax disclosures strategically to offset poor environmental performance. 
And we also find that firms in the U.S. that have actually avoided a lot of tax and are paying very little tax are using these types of disclosures. And so this is essentially another way of thinking of greenwashing or window dressing. Okay, so next let's talk about some of our pedagogical research. Dr. Key, can you tell us about your work with an Irish professor? Sure. Um, my Irish co-authors and I actually started by having students in our classes work on a case together. At the beginning, we were not even thinking about research, but we realized we could use that setting and the theory of cultural intelligence to test some aspects of the cultural intelligence uh, concept. Three different groups of students have worked together. We asked them several questions about the experience, which comprises our data, and we now have a paper under review at a British accounting journal. Um, the research allowed me to travel twice to Europe for conferences, and I received a summer research grant for the work. And that's a, it's a really great benefit of doing research and being in a faculty position, as we really do have some good travel opportunities. Yes, excellent. I, I've, I know all of us have presented at international conferences and have really enjoyed that experience. Okay, Dr. Mathis, can you tell us about one of your projects? Yes, I had trouble um, picking because I think most of your students are familiar with both of mine. So I was lucky that both Dr. Inger and Dr. Key were willing to work with me um, starting probably in the summer of 2019, maybe prior to that, um, on some cases. And so the first one you all are going to get to do this semester, I believe, with Dr. Inger, um, looking at taxation issues related to virtual currency. The second one, which only those of you probably who took my class for graduate credit have done, um, dealt with Section 199A, um, which was the new flow-through entity deduction. And so that was really fun. Dr. Key really guided me through that process. I had started the project with another co-author previously, and we really didn't have much direction. Um, she's shaking her head no, but it's true. Um, and Dr. Key was definitely able to kind of um, channel that in the right direction. So a lot of you got to work through that case. And what we were doing there um, is not only making students learn how Section 199A, that deduction works, um, but also how to incorporate that into tax planning for potential clients. Um, and so we were able to also incorporate um, compensation considerations, depreciation considerations. Um, and I think it not only helps students learn about a new tax issue, but also build some Excel skills as well. So um, and just as a reference, those um, cases are typically not always, but a quicker um, route to publication, like one to one and a half to two years maybe, whereas some of my um, academic research is going on five or six years at this point. Yes, excellent. So yes, you guys will all get to do the virtual currency project um, as the third assignment, and I talked about it in class as well today. All right, so I think you're familiar with a few of my cases now, so I'll tell you about one of my professional publications instead. And it's been a couple years since I published this study, but essentially it's looking at a very specific type of restatement of financial statements for a tax issue, and it's incorrect accounting for intangible assets in an acquisition. One of my last clients at PwC had this issue, um, so they were a a big company in Atlanta and they did not get their tax accounting right and had a restatement as a result. And you probably know that a restatement is really a big deal. I was at a conference once where a tax director said they wouldn't lose their job for amending a tax return, but they would lose their job for a tax related restatement. So 
anyways, um, we wrote about it and that's the paper that I've actually had people that I used to work with reach out to me and said they saw it. So it was in um, a journal that's maybe more widely read because there's a lot more practitioners than academics. Um, okay, well, is there anything else that, that you all would like to add before we wrap up? Looks I don't like think if, if any of you have ever considered a career in academia, I think any of us would love to talk to you about it. Okay, I think thanks. It was uh, fun to do this, Carrie, or Dr. Inger. Sorry, yes. and I, feel free to edit out anything that I've said. Oh, no, it's been great. And just thank you both so much um, for taking the time to do this with me. I don't think that, um, that the students realize that our faculty is much more close-knit than most places. And so every day I just feel lucky and blessed to have um, Dr. Mathis and Dr. Key as our little um, tax group. It really, really is special. Um, and so I look forward to listening to all of your podcasts in the future um, in the next couple of weeks. All right, thank you so much. <laughs>